Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Renowned Podcast. This is episode seven, and we are your hosts, Mark Schultz. And Allison Hager. So, Allison, how was this week? It was good. It was a little busy um, just due to other things in my life, but I think that the word and the topic was really rich. Ah, good. How about for you? Excellent. Yeah, um, same. Things were... bit crazy, but I love, you know, finding the time to, to get this done. And, and I don't know, I just feel like it's sort of building momentum. I, I feel more connected to things. I feel like we're using those brain muscles to be more critical thinkers about things. Uh, I don't know. I mean, long way to go for me, I think <laughs> in many ways, but uh, it's, it's been good. It's been good. Uh, do you want to remind us of what the word is this week? Absolutely. So the random word that we had generated for us last week was dirt. Good old so, dirt. <laughs> I said, very rich. A lot of possible ways to go. So I'm really excited, Mark, to see which direction you picked. Yes, right. You- Compare. We have yet to do like the ex- almost, the, I think it'd be very difficult if we had the exact same path, but, you know, similar enough paths um, where maybe we find even the same references or something. That'll be interesting. But yeah, we'll see. I, we'll see. I, I had a thought this week that where I ended up might be be something you would do. But why don't we jump in and find out? So as a reminder, or if you're a new listener, uh, Mark and I each roll a die to see who gets to go first. So yes, a die. I would like to acknowledge that in every episode so far, I have called this a dice. And Allison and I had a conversation about it (laughs) because... I noticed it, and then she was keeping from me that she noticed it every every episode, which I think is funny. Anyway, just in my background, I, my family always called it dice, regardless of if it was one or two and board games and whatever. And I think that just stuck. I knew it was a die, but I've always called it dice. Anyway. It, it just seemed like a petty thing to correct you on. So. No, no, but yeah, it's, it is a die. I get it. You got uh, that. All right. So let's roll our die. Singular, okay. damn it. <laughs> All right. What'd you get? Three. Three as well. That's the third time that we've uh-huh. done that. Okay. And Three. six. All right. <laughs> okay. Mark for the win. Yes. Let me jump in. If you could give me 15 seconds on your clock, Allison, I will try to contain myself to 15. All right. As a reminder, listeners, or if you're new to our show, this is uh, what we call just the hits. And we each have 15 seconds to sum up what we're going to be talking about today. So Mark, three, two, one. Dirt may be a derogatory term for excrement and filth, but if we take a closer look at the shit in our soil, we can see how it plays a role in a vital balance that sustains all life on earth. Two seconds to spare. Nice. I rushed at the end there because I was like running out of time. And that, and I love the direction you're going in. I feel like it ties in a little bit to last week, maybe talking about some of the connections in the soil between plants. That's very true. Primary producers. I thought of that Um, a bit during my, uh, my research this week. Excellent. Nice. All right. Well, let me uh, turn the tables on you. Set up your 15. You ready? I'm ready. All right. In three, two, one. We're all familiar with the idiom old as dirt. 
And today we're going to explore just how old dirt is and why it's so foundational to us on multiple levels. So I'm looking forward to getting down and dirty with today's word. You also had two seconds left. Hmm, we're Interesting. very aligned. No, I love yours. There's some intrigue there. I'm not really sure where you're going to go. That's kind of cool. Old dirt. I mean, yeah, All right. let's, let's do it. Um, cool. So I will kick things off, right? And head down yield rabbit hole. Uh, as we started to do, kick it off with some trivia. So here is question one, Allison. An acre of healthy topsoil can contain 900 pounds of what? A, stone. B, earthworms. C, water or d small mammals <laughs> sorry i don't know why small mammals made me laugh um, so i'm gonna say i'm gonna say earthworms no nope, it earthworms. is earthworms yes Boom. i finally got one right everybody Ooh, feeling good good way to start <laughs> yes. the show earthworms uh and for each earthworm in that acre an estimated 15 tons of dry soil pass through each earthworm in a year That's remarkable each year 15 tons so little guys are moving guys and gals moving and pooping well are they no they're not female or male right oh my gosh no they're not <laughs> just just earthworms i don't know i feel right like i'm like suddenly like are they are they right, somebody find us on question. social and and tell us <laughs> if earthworms have different sexes okay so what I, where I went to uh, from here is, is dirt the same as soil? Sort of where I started from. Uh, so per the etymology, I'll take a second to cover that, right? I have to, I just have to. Uh, back in the 15th century, dirt became a metathesis, and I'll talk about what that is in a second, of the Middle English drit, D-R-I-T, or D-R-Y-T-T which was meaning excrement, dung, feces, or any foul, filthy thing. But it also meant mud or earth, especially loose earth. Um, so I didn't know what a metathesis was, so I looked that up. And that is a term where there's a switching of position in the sounds of a word, where drit became dirt. Um, and also, metathesis is a term in chemistry where there's a swapping of ions. So you can oh. see where that was buried, where there's this basically a switching of position. Um, also between drit and dirt, those are called cognates. Now that may be a more familiar term for a lot of folks, uh, but that is basically where two words have a common etymological ancestor. They become cognates. They are cognates, that is. So I thought that was interesting. At some point, let's just reflip the Somebody, probably somewhere, someone, I don't know. I always picture this when I, when I think of the story of, of how words change, I don't know, somebody in a, in a tavern somewhere, probably who was of renown might've like made a mistake or like heard something and switched it and it just propagated itself. And who knows, right? Um, I just think that kind of thing where it, it flips for some reason is, is kind of fascinating. But anyway, so I started there and per the etymology, right? Dirt as excrement or foul things in mud. So the first thing that crossed my mind was that that seems to be sort of no surprise that long ago in areas that would have not had plumbing at all, much less like substantial plumbing or infrastructures. So village and city life, I think 
right? You would have experienced these things pretty closely. Earth and topsoil and excrement and dung would have been sort of just, in my opinion, just my recollection of things, kind of one and the same. So it's not really surprising to me that we had a term that was meaning sort of both of those things. Um, what I think, though, becomes a bit interesting is where over time, I think we've learned that with advances in science, chemistry, biology, we've come to understand that that dung, the dirt, so to speak, in the soil is really what is valuable uh, to life on earth, right? When we think of knowing that it's fertilizer, why composting is important, why, you know, all of that, I think, has come to light in the, the many hundreds of years, you know, since. Um, and so for that reason, you're going to hear me focus sort of on dirt and soil as one thing um, from here on out um, and, and focusing a little bit more on soil. So what is it? First, we need to consider that dirt or soil is not really a homogenous, inert, static thing, right? I, I think I certainly growing up and most of my life would be like, okay, the dirt, the soil. I, I might suspect, and and anybody of intellect would be like, well, there's probably different types doing different things. Uh, but we need to think of it as not like one homogenous thing, as I said. Um, you know, even we might call the sandy infield of a baseball field the dirt, right? The ball landed in the dirt, whatever. Or that a dog, you know, and that might be the same term we use for a dog coming coming in covered with dirt from when she buried a bone, say, in the family's flower garden. Well, that type of dirt, that sandy dirt from an infield and a very rich dirt that might grow plant life, right? We can already start to draw a distinction, I think, between those the two types of, of um, sustenance we'll get to, that those two things are. So a gentleman named Andy Manali, I be believe it's uh, pronounced is a, a master of science and a master of public policy. He is retired from the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and he teamed with a gentleman named Skip Heiberg, who is a PhD economist and scientist. And in a 2021 publication called "A Guide to Understanding the Fundamental Principles Principles of Environmental Management." Um, has described a few things, but I have to pause for a second. So although it's called a guide to understanding the fundamental principles of environmental management, I think the subtitle is quite fun. It ain't magic. Everything goes somewhere. <laughs> it's really funny for like very two gentlemen of high esteem and like learning to be like, all right, guys, it ain't magic. I think I like it's great. It. Um, so they set up, you know, soil. This is a direct quote. Soil is a dynamic matrix of mineral particles, air, water, organic matter, and living organisms. And so they, they go on to explain that the proportions of the organic or carbon-based compounds in the dirt versus inorganic compounds non-carbon-based, is really what gives us the range and the, and the different types of dirt that are out there. <clears throat> um, it's in fact what might drive us to, to consider distinctions, I think, between dirt and soil, as we've been like sort of talking about, or topsoil and mud versus et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so in their estimation, we can think of soil uh, in, in three, sort of in three categories. Two are inorganic, and one is organic. Um, but in each, they have different levels of stability and sort of variability. So one, um, water and air sort of 
part of the the inorganic components of the soil uh, are very unstable, sort of as we know, right? So wind and rain can come and go and and vary in intensity quite significantly, right? So that component, this inorganic water and air, massively variable, right? So that is one of the three sort of types of things that are that are influencing soil. Two, mineral components, the other inorganic part here, um, these are rather stable, right? Compared to wind and water, these are things that are on a much larger geologic time scale, right? These, this is bedrock that has then over time um, split into smaller and smarter particles that are part of part of the soil. Uh, so that, right, is pretty stable. Those things aren't really going anywhere, right? Whereas the wind and the rain is coming through. We have rain, it floods, it dries out, droughts, to et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then three, the organic part of this are the, the compounds um, that depends on, you know, veg, veg, vegeta sorry, <laughs> the inorganic compounds that depend on vegetation um, and how the land is used or potentially abused by humans and also animal activity that happens on the soil. Um, those things, of course, are very variable as well because we're sort of in control of them, but also animals and concentrations of animals and things will, will vary. So the health of the soil overall is dependent on the balance of these three things and how they support the biological activity that microorganisms and such are having within the soil. So tell me, Allison, if I'm flying through it, uh, speak no, for our I think audience. You're I think your pace is perfect, actually. Okay, I was great, just making great. some notes on things I was finding really interesting oh, that I wanted okay, to cool. look up afterwards. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, so I'll pause there just to, to break it up with uh, another little trivia question. Um, uh, <laughs> I like how you got all excited. So trivia two. Harvey Blatt, author of a 2004 book, America's Environmental Report Card, has said that, quote- F, we got an F. I'm, kidding, <laughs> so I'm sure we did. I'm, I'm sure we did. So he said in his book, quote, one heaping tablespoon of healthy soil may contain up to nine billion blank. Is that nine billion A, atoms of carbon, B, microorganisms? B, it's B. I already know the answer. Oh, you do know the answer. <laughs> I tried to write this difficulty. Difficultly. And it was actually very difficult to think after I knew microorganisms. I'm like, what else could there be 9 billion of in there? Small I mammals. I was like, <laughs> 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 really small mammals. Um, packing them in. Yeah, I was like, potassium ions, particles of silt. Uh, uh, well, you nailed it. So, microorganisms, uh, 9 billion is more than the human population of Earth for now. Just to be a buzzkill, I had to look up the projection. The UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs projects that the global population will reach 9.5 billion by 2050. Not good news, folks. We're in huge trouble. <laughs> I, 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 although last week, Mark, you said that um, you wanted to focus on more optimistic threads because you felt like we both were going down. So I'll, I won't dwell on that one. No, I... I think we can balance it. I, I was going through that through this research because I find some things that are alarming to this week, but I, I don't think I go too dark. We'll see. So, all right. 
we can think of soil, uh, if we move on, we'll think of soil in some ways as a machine with a system of maybe four gears that we can consider turning with each other. That each gear has sort of its own size. And if anybody knows thing about gears and sizes, that size will determine sort of its speed, its uh, how it interacts um, with the, the other gears, right? So those four gears we can think of as water, carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus. Any folks listening who are chemistry or biology uh, knowledgeable in those areas know that those really are like the the, the necessary components or recipe for, for life. Um, and the other thing to think about is each one of these has their own cycle. Now, I'm not going to go into all of them, but if anyone's interested, just know that you've, you've probably heard of the water cycle, right? That one's probably the most familiar. I think all of us at some point in junior high school or high school in earth science probably talked about water tables, talked about the, the flow of percolation to evaporation up into the air. It condenses, it rains, that's precipitation, and the cycle continues, et cetera, et cetera. But know that there are similar um, cycles for carbon, for nitrogen, for phosphorus. In fact, a few episodes ago, if you're one of our tried and true listeners, uh, I spoke a little bit about the carbon cycle when we talked about um, asphalt and its effect on um, CO2 and its effect on the ozone layer. And that sort of touched on the, the carbon cycle to a degree. So I will um, probably hook back into that in, in just a few minutes. So the balance of these components must be maintained. Otherwise, the fertility of the soil would be adversely affected, right? And so threats to this balance between these four components uh, are as follows. You can over-irrigate. So irrigation, right, is the uh, man's use of basically watering fields, right? You find a way to divert rivers or you find a way somehow to move water and sort of artificially water fields other than just natural rainfall. Uh, forgive me if anyone thinks I'm... Speaking the obvious, but even myself, when I forced myself to define irrigation, struggled for an exact definition. So that's, you know, that's basically what that is. Um, so over-irrigating can lead to issues with the soil salt content, right? Affecting plants' ability to grow. So over-irrigation becomes a problem with salinity. Uh, soil compaction from confined livestock, right? Stamping their feet, their weight, confined... Um, compacting the soil or from machinery and, and overuse of, of big, heavy, modern machines can reduce the amount of air in the pores within the soil. And that affects the ability of the soil to absorb water. Therefore, you you know things will have runoff and, and depositions of some things of that nature will start to, to uh, affect um, the soil as well. And you need air, of course, for a lot of chemical reactions and things to, to occur. The use of fertilizers can affect acidity of soils. And in the research, they called out specifically places like Australia that already apparently have a slightly more acidic level to their soils naturally. The addition of human use of fertilizers can really kind of cause that to go over a threshold where it really becomes a problem and the viability of the soils is at, is at risk. So I'll take a second because I thought it was a very nice, as I, as I mentioned before, complement to the discussion about carbon from asphalt and highway. Uh, I thought I'd go a little bit deeper into carbon in particular. Um, so we should remind ourselves of carbon in general. It's a unique 
it has a unique molecular bonding properties, right? It can, it can interact with so many different things. It's easy, so to speak. She gets around, he gets around. Um, so because of that, right, it is so important that there's an entire branch of science devoted to it, organic chemistry. I can hear many of you screeching right now, probably in painful memories, college memories of organic chem. Um, so we shouldn't only think though of soils uh, as important for, for growing things, right? Or for growing food. While that may be certainly one of their most essential roles, um, especially as we face the overpopulation that Allison and I just touched on, right? With the projection of, you know, 2050, 9.5 billion people and, and growing. Um, we can also think of soil as a really significant carbon sink, right? Think of too much carbon and its role in the atmosphere as being negative. Having more opportunities to sink carbon, to store it, to sequester it into things um, is important. And so soil holds the largest portion of active carbon on, on earth. Higher levels of carbon in soil uh, improves uh, the aeration, right? For oxygen content in the soil, uh, as well as the overall stability, uh, in part because the soil can then hold more water. And as we talked about, that reduces the risk of erosion from the soil. So it doesn't hurt the soil I just wanted to cover that. It doesn't hurt the soil to be a carbon sink. It's not like we're forcing that on soil. Soil is like, no, no, I don't want it. It actually oh, helps. Poor right? soil. Poor, poor soil. Um, it actually helps. Uh, the, the carbon content also increases the biological activity in the soil that drives decomposition of the organic materials. Animals die. They're there. You know, they're not just staying there. <laughs> they're being stripped by microorganisms. You know, the, uh, the engine of this is, is largely carbon, apparently. Um, so therefore a few best practices for sustainable agricultural practices come to mind so that we're not throwing, um, the, the dynamics off and we keep an eye on the treatment of carbon in this, in this system. One is optimized tilling practices, uh, to balance the amount of necessary tilling with other soil maintenance so that there's a net positive carbon effect is achieved, right? So apparently tilling, which I, I really wouldn't have thought of this, tilling exposes the carbon in the soil to the air. So naturally it's then letting off and the carbon's bonding with oxygen and you're farming carbon dioxide that is then being emitted up into the atmosphere. Um, I think we're always thinking of nature out there as taking in carbon dioxide and doing its mm photosynthesis magic, but I think we're forgetting that right under all those plants is a massive amount of soil that if it's churned up, it is, can actually be emitting CO2, um, which was interesting to me because I'm, I'm thinking of the asphalt and I'm thinking of the, the negative emissions from that. And it's kind of dawning on me now, the more research I do is this, these things that I consider inert that are just out there exposed right. to the air aren't doing anything, but they are. So um, tilling, although it's certainly necessary, it can be planned, the research I did, so that there's a proper proportion of that tilling. So that overall, the, the sinking of the carbon is outweighing the, the kickup of carbon dioxide in the, in the periodic tilling. And so there are best practices for, for people to, to do that. 
uh, crop residue management. I thought this was interesting. So the crop residue would be after you, you know, harvest the crops, how much of it is leaving behind? I'm assuming it's things like chaff or things like, you know, that are, that are waste products, but they're still part of the plant. So this residue is of course organic. It can then decay and return carbon back to the soil. There's also something called cover crops. I didn't know what this was at all. Um, these cover crops are planted and not intended to be harvested, but to grow in areas that are in field areas that are, you know, not actively planted with something else. So picture, right, you have three fields and you're focusing on field three for this growing season with corn. You might, you should probably plant cover crops that you're not going to harvest, you're not going to sell. But what they're doing is they are keeping the biodiversity of the soil rich. They are reducing pests, they're fighting weed infestation, and just the root systems. The roots play a massive role in, you know, creating biological decomposition when, when they die um, in, in the soil itself. And isn't there something, Mark, and you may have not come across this in your research, and I don't remember the details, but I do remember from some sort of science class, there's also certain plants that really help like lock in nitrogen in soil because there are certain crops that deplete very heavily deplete soils of nitrogen. And once that happens, you know, your fields are, can be yep. absolutely useless. And so there are certain plants you should plant after to rotate, to make sure that you're replacing it. That Is makes that right? sense. I, I didn't get into deeper than the, than the just cover crops in general. I think okay. in other parts of my research, yeah, that the nitrogen fixing was certainly part of it. Um, to your point, especially in the nitrogen cycle. So nitrogen was one of our lists. And so I didn't go into the the phosphorus and the nitrogen cycle. I looked them up and I saw like similar circular arrow, you know, diagrams of that. But to your point, that's an important part of this whole system for sure. I think um, it points out something you've commented on before. You start doing the research and then you could just do it. You could yeah. for a month because then you realize all the you're stuff. You're like, oh, I'm like, know. I have no idea what the phosphorus no. cycle is. And it looked really interesting. And, and that's what I mean by the different sizes of the gears, because the phosphorus cycle, there aren't as many stages and it seems to take sort of, it, it felt like it took a lot longer for things to happen mm -hmm. in that cycle. It's interesting. Um, a couple of the other ones, so manure and composting. I think that's an obvious one that I think any of us would, that'd probably be the first one that I think a layman would guess. We'd be like, well, you're probably going to want manure. <laughs> you're going to want to fertilize that. So yes, that is true. Uh, and then the last one would be the types of crops used. Uh, apparently there are perennial crops that don't require annual planting. And crops like that naturally have a more robust or, or dense, oh, sorry, such as crops that have a naturally robust or dense root system. As I mentioned, that's important. And also crops that would just naturally have more of the residue, as I mentioned, uh, for whatever reason, when you harvest them, the, the type of plant just leaves more stuff behind that we don't need or sell or eat perhaps. Uh, and the amount of carbon solids, you know, um, can store really depends uh, on the water content. So the water content of different types of soil becomes pretty important. And here's an interesting comparison of three different types of uh, I don't know what to call it, sort of like water levels of soil, right? So moderately wet grasslands have more than three times the stored carbon 
of dry desert scrub, right? Mm. So you have dry desert scrub, and then you have three times more when you move to just sort of regular, moderate grasslands, like an average climate. But then you go four times that of the moderate grasslands when you go to wetlands, so swamps and marshes. So what that's showing you is that with each sort of gradation of how wet the soil is, you just get a massive amount of carbon storage that's possible, which really underscores, I think, and, and at least for me, puts a little bit more tangibly why wetlands are so important. Mm. Um, I, I think we just maybe know that in general. We think maybe it's just the water. In, in some ways, it's probably not just the water. It's also how much carbon in general is being sunk because of that. Because if we look really macro system in the world, this is why there is some hope that if we slow things down, this would be the engine of what starts to strip things out of the out of the atmosphere that are negative, right? These these little carbon sinks could start to bring nature back into balance over time. We just can't lose them all. Um, however, that is a good segue into my last section, which is why should we be concerned? And I'm going to try to not be too much of a buzzkill, Allison, as you mentioned. So in many you know, ways, I, I want to be clear. I you're very much allowed to be a buzzkill, and sometimes our topics are going to bring us that way. It's just cute because last week you were like, "I'm going to make an effort to be optimistic." Right. Right. <laughs> um, so okay, you can think of Earth as this. Oh, sorry, you can think of soil as the skin of the Earth a thin, but a really critical organ, much like for us, that sustains life in, ma in many ways. Um, but it doesn't replenish this skin quickly. Uh, in 2015, scientists from the University of Sheffield reported that it takes about 500 years to form 2.5 centimeters of topsoil under normal agricultural conditions. Wait, say that stat again? In It takes... 500 years to form two and a half centimeters depth of topsoil, right? So that topsoil, as we can imagine, based on everything I just described that it's doing, incredibly valuable. We just need to keep it around and not damage it so much that we're waiting 500 years. Because mm -hmm. as we know, that's not a balance that we're going to be around for then if we, if, we met, if we muck that up, so to speak. Um, so here are some stats that I put together. We just mentioned wetlands in particular. Looking at the U.S., in 1780, there were 200 million acres of wetlands. As of 2019, there are 110 million acres of wetlands. So at first glance, that may seem like, well, it's still up there, 110 versus 200. But to consider 90 million acres of wetlands having disappeared, I think is, is alarming. Also, that's wetlands. That is the, the best of the best of those three levels, three levels that I just talked about, um, right? Wetlands were the most of a carbon sink, sort of the most valuable for us ecologically. So I thought, all right, let's take a look at grasslands. Like, so the Great Plains have lost over 2.5 million acres of intact grasslands from 2018 to 2019. So that's in one year, right? I couldn't find a comparison. I couldn't find, right, the 1780 to now. I think it'd be bleak. Um, but if we're losing 2.5 million acres in just a year in, in current time, I, I think that's 
very alarming, right? Um, for our ability to have these carbon sinks, for our ability to have something that can start to rebalance the world, um, the ecosystem. So the, the mismanagement of soil, right, has is really demonstrated um, dire consequences throughout our history. And I found some examples of that. And, and I promise we're coming to the end of my rabbit hole here. Uh, the degradation of soil quality historically has led to the downfall, it is postulated, of several ancient civilizations. Allison and I have mentioned the, the term fertile crescent, and we sort of laughed and said, oh, that's such a sixth grade term. It's bringing things back to us, et cetera, et cetera. Poor land management, apparently, in the fertile crescent is what led, you know, excessive irrigation, as I talked about, which would have damaged the salinity, the, the, the salt content of the soil and damaged its ability to, to grow plants, led to the depletion of the soils and basically the collapse of the fertile crescent civilizations. And what I didn't realize, I mean, I, I didn't know that actually, but something else I learned was similar assertions have been made about the Mayan and the Harappan uh, civilizations falling for similar reasons. Uh, currently, a third of the Earth's land is severely degraded. Um, we're losing about 24 billion tons of fertile soil a year, according to a global land outlook, which was um, presented at the Convention to Combat Desertification, Desertification in 2017. You know that the more that I looked on, you know the UN's sites and many of the UN's internal departments and teams dedicated to this, you can see such an urgency around desertification. Um, what's interesting, I, I don't have uh, factoids on it, but I can maybe post them in our episode notes or on the website. Romania is particularly focused on this topic. I'm forgetting. It's like half of their country is in huh. a desertification risked uh, risked, um, at risk for desertification climate wise. So for that country in particular, this is front and center, right? This is and like, Mark, do they no know joke. why Romania? I'm just curious. Is it, um, I think it's just where is it a it number is. of climate factors based on yes. yeah, like where it is kind of geologically and geographically, or are they doing certain things? Okay. Yeah. I think, uh, just where they are and, and how the climate is shifting and, and where they're positioned. But I would think with that is probably coming I just feel like so much of humanity has been guilty of over farming and farming in wrong ways. And, you know, I had that list of, of best practices that are being disseminated now in the world, but there is such a difference in the knowledge and the urgency, to be honest, between quote unquote, third world countries, right. And the developed world, because <sighs> try to write that living and dying. How do you go in and try to teach people that are relying on that field to go do it right. Or like do something differently when they are just skating by on what it's doing now. Right. I feel like that's the, the hard truth of how to make changes when it's maybe not something, you know what I mean? Like they, they don't have the time to try something different if they're just making it season to season. So that's yeah. a, that's a scary truth. Uh, so I'll finish up with trivia three. My last question, uh, Earth, Earth's soils contain about how much carbon compared to the atmosphere? Is it A, sorry, I'll, I'll say that again. Earth's soils contain about how much carbon compared to the atmosphere? A, it's less than half as much as the atmosphere. Or B, 
the soils contain about the same amount as the atmosphere. C, soils contain more than three times as much. Or D, the atmosphere doesn't contain carbon. Um, I'm going to go with C. Yes, you nailed it. Three times oh, as much. Three, four, three. You're, you're killing it today. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so harnessing the power of soils to what they call sequester or store carbon is seen as a really important part of global efforts to combat climate change. If I haven't beat that drum loud enough today, <laughs> uh, a, two set, a 2017 study estimated that with better management, global croplands have the potential to store an additional 1.85 gigatons of carbon each year. That is as much as the global transportation sector emits annually. Huh. So there's a little bit of optimism, right? If we were to do things right, we can store more and wipe out the effects of transportation and emitting, which would be a big plus, obviously. <laughs> um, where I left off, I like to always mention where I left off digging my rabbit hole. Uh, I think, as I already mentioned, understanding those broader cycles at play, the nitrogen and the phosphorus cycles, really don't know anything that's going on there. Uh, and also the deeper, deeper role that the microorganisms are playing themselves, right? Um, and the flora itself, both in fixing and emitting elements and compounds. They're doing both. Um, and so I didn't really dig too deep in into that, but that's such a pivotal, like that, that, that is the engine in many ways, as you mentioned before, Allison, especially with the nitrogen. Um, the hope for addressing, you know, imbalances uh, and the loss before we're at like a permanent tipping point. I didn't really see, like, I, I know I shared that optimistic metric just now, but I, I would like to go and see I know the alarms have been trying to be rung in the scientific community for so long, but like, where is the the line in the sand, so to speak, on on if we can turn things around or not? So, thank you, uh, everyone, for listening to my my rabbit hole this week. <laughs> that was great, Mark. I think uh, you'll see when I get into mine. I it, it's it's different, but there are a, a, a bunch of points like crossovers. So oh, that's good. Interesting that we, Excellent. That we hit both of those. Um, and I also find it really interesting that I, I guess, again, this was part of our hypothesis originally, but so many things we are in episode seven. Am mm -hmm. I right? Yeah. So, so many times already there have been crossovers between episodes, even though the word and the direction we may have gone with that word is very, very different from week to week. Like last week, the word was production. Then I was talking about the production cycle and you were talking about the carbon cycle. And then I was talking about trees and how they interact with the soil. And here we are. And it's like linking back in. And I, every episode, I think we've seen some link back to something that we wouldn't have necessarily predicted would be related. And I think that's really fascinating. That's a really good point. It's true. Right? It is such a, it's a massive network of learning and interconnectedness. Yeah. 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 Which makes it fun. Um, you also, I you got me thinking about a few things, but I think I'm going to save them for a big question. Okay, that's a deal. Segment. Um, and thank you for giving me easy questions so that I didn't look as dumb this week <laughs> as I have. <laughs> I think you're just smart. They weren't, uh, they weren't super easy. That's good. Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed all three. That's amazing. Okay. Should I? Should I? Go down my rabbit hole? Of course, let's do it. Okay, so Mark already touched on dirt versus soil 
and how the word dirt can mean the same thing and, you know, yet they can be defined differently. And this was one of the tricky things I found in the initial research this week in untangling that. There are also many other words for or meanings for dirt, right? But basically the Soil Science Society of America defines dirt as um, displaced soil. So they say, you know, soil, it's alive. Like Mark was saying, it's full of microorganisms and worms and fungi and insects and other organic material. Whereas they define dirt as dead. Dirt is, you know, the sand, the silt, the clay, the little pieces of rock. Interesting. Um, yeah, so it has none of the living organisms. It's not a it's not an organized ecosystem, but it is the basis of soil, right? It, it's how soil starts. So you start with that with that basis of, of dirt and all those other things come to it, and then you have a rich soil. Um, so it's this very tenuous difference, but I wanted to look at the kind of dirt piece as dirt, but you really can't do that without it also just flowing into soil. So uh, bear with me. So all soil on the earth began as dirt. Um, and all that dirt came from rocks eroding into sand and grit and dust and gravel. Um, all those things, of course, again, used interchangeably, but let's go back to the beginning of dirt, go back to the basics. So we know that dirt is created when rocks break down. That happens through wind erosion, through water erosion, glacial grinding, uh, sometimes heat and chemical reactions creating these small particles. And then this dirt becomes the basis of soil, as I think we've made very clear now. I think I've said it like three times and Mark said it three times. So stop repeating. Piles that. of soil, piles of soil, piles <laughs> exactly. of soil. Exactly. We build things from these piles of soil, going back to construction. <laughs> going back to episode two, everybody. <laughs> So you get this, you get this dirt from, from rocks breaking down. Also, once enough dirt has collected in one place, and we're talking vast amounts of dirt here, that dirt will then create sedimentary rock because the weight of the soil itself will compact and that pressure will compact the bottom layers into actual rock. And then the process begins again. So in earth science, this is creatively named the rock cycle. <laughs> Which just makes me laugh. It's like straightforward, name it what it is. Uh, so Mark talked about the carbon cycle and the nitrogen cycle and the phosphorus cycle. And I'm going to talk about the rock cycle. Um, the rock cycle is more complicated than that because there are three types of rock, right? There's igneous, there's metamorphic, and there's sedimentary. And there are additional interactions and processes that act on and affect those other two, the, the formation of and the breakdown of. But we're really going to primarily focus on the sedimentary rock in our dirt talk today. Is it weird that I had a preference as a kid? I was like, ew, I hate sedimentary rock. It's all like of course crumbly it's and all whatever. Dirty. And I was like, igneous, like fire bread and it's sharp and it's shiny. Yes, I like igneous rocks. Somehow that never, like that doesn't surprise me. It seems very you right. Know, Am I butchering that? Igneous rocks are like volcanic rocks and like correct. Yeah. Yep. Go igneous. <laughs> Team igneous. Hashtag. Okay. I'm sorry. So I think else. I think we've made it very very clear that dirt's created from rocks. Sedimentary rock is created from dirt. So which one came first? How did this all start? Well, what do you think, Mark? I would. That's really hard. Um, Actually, don't answer because if you you might just give away my my entire next like paragraph. <laughs> I would think igneous. It has to come from the core oh, no. and lava okay. explosion. 
Yeah, no, I didn't frame my question very well. Uh, I, I, so I'm glad I didn't, but I was just thinking if, if dirt's creating sedimentary rocks and sedimentary rocks are creating dirt, it's like the chicken and the egg, which one came first of those two. So the oldest sedimentary rocks known of on earth are approximately 3.9 billion years old. Earth is approximately 4.54 billion years old, give or take 50 million, sorry, billion, give or take 50 billion years. Um, but these, the oldest sedimentary rocks that have been discovered, they're found in Greenland in a belt of rock known as the Isua sequence. It's I-S-U-A. I looked up many places how to pronounce this correctly. And Isua seems to be what most scientists say, but if someone knows uh, a better pronunciation, please do let me know. I had not heard of, of the Asua sequence, but there it's not just sedimentary rock. Um, there are different types of rock. They're the oldest that have been found on earth. Um, so they're almost as old as the earth itself. So where did they came from? come from? Well, they were once dirt too. And that dirt or dust came from the Big Bang. So the Big Bang came, occurred approximately 13.8 billion years ago, creating cosmic dust. As we know, dirt, dust, mud, smut, soil, excrement, they're all the same thing, right? So this cosmic dust, this cosmic dirt is created by the Big Bang, and that dust then condensed to form the stars and later the planets, including our planet. So the planets are formed out of this cosmic dust, which eventually compacted to rock here on Earth. And we see some examples of that in this Greenland sequence. That rock eventually broke down into dirt. And you already know this, it goes back to being rock. We go through the rock cycle. So I started in my quick hit on, you know, okay, we have an idiom in the English language, old is dirt. Like how old is dirt really? And the amazing answer to that question is it's older than the stars themselves. It was created from the Big Bang which then created the stars. So I think that's pretty amazing. It is amazing. I love that you just said that because I'm now it's occurring to me, right? I said, well, the volcanic activity would have to happen first. Well, no, right? Because what you're saying is that cosmic dust, as we've been reading about orbit, right? From the very first episode, and I've then gone down my physics rabbit hole on like, uh, modern definitions of physics trying to solve, you know, the equation of everything and gravity, et cetera. And so over time, those things had to, there was nothing too much heavier than other things, but over a massive amount of time, right? They started to have mm -hmm. gravitational pulls towards each other. And then when they got so heavy, it fused to be molten core, right? Great. Got it. <laughs> sorry, audience. I'm like no, checking. I'm like, that's correct, right? Okay, good. <laughs> and then sure. we go from, you know, the Big Bang happening, you know, 13.8 billion years ago, we go to Earth becoming a planet, as far as they can tell about let's just say 4.5 billion years ago, and then all these processes. So everything's coalesced now and you have a molten ball of stuff. Um, and then Mark, as you said, you know, you have a million chemical reactions going on. You have a million physical reactions going on that then take all of this and create earth as we know it. Um, still molten in the middle as we know, for those of you that believe in a rounder and orbital earth. Um, <laughs> And and the dust. So so a lot of a lot of things were going on. Not just the the um, the condensation, like I was talking about. Like as Mark pointed out, all these other things were going on too. But the fact that I would never have thought of it this way until I was doing this research that dirt is older than the stars kind of 
blew my mind. So not only is our planet created from dirt um, in the true definition, we also rely on dirt. And Mark, you talked a lot about this. So we rely on dirt as the primary ingredient in the soil that produces the vast majority of our food. When we think back to our primary producers that we discussed last episode in the food chain. So dirt is truly foundational to us as a species. It's what we stand on. It's what we rely on for the basis of sustenance. And it's also what we become again when we die. We step back into that never-ending cycle, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So we are part of that bigger cycle as well. Um, or to look at it from a maybe more lovely angle, uh, to quote a Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young lyric, we are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon, which is from a song called Woodstock, which was actually written by the incomparable Joni Mitchell, and CSNY covered it, which I never knew. Amazing. Um, yeah. So um, so we are also star stuff. So, okay. As important and fundamental as it is, dirt has so many negative connotations. And Mark touched on this when he was talking about the etymology in the beginning of his rabbit hole, right? It means smut, excrement, filth, grime, mud. Um, we use it for things, right? Like talking dirty. We call people dirt, dirt bags, that sort of thing. So this really beautiful thing that we end up becoming anyway, and that has created a world that we can actually inhabit and thrive on has all these negative connotations. And I find that really interesting because I think it really deserves kind of all of our respects. Um, and then as a final note, so if we move from that, as if dirt isn't amazing enough, if we move into a more metaphorical realm with dirt, this dust that became our home planet dirt, it looms even larger, I think, for humans, for our species, in our sense of our place in the world. So the phrases, you know, it's, you know, getting a patch of dirt, my piece of earth, you know, you see this again and again in history. Uh, you see this actually taking place in the importance of things like when, um, you know, sharecropping arose after slavery ended, the importance of people having a piece of land on which to start building their life. Um, it's, you know, my piece of earth, a place you put down your roots where people raise a family, where they derive sustenance, as well as that sense of self and belonging and connection to the world. So it's not just physically and chemically fundamental to our survival. It is for us on this higher level we seem to attach a lot of importance to it metaphorically. And there are two beautiful poems. I'm sure there are many more than two beautiful poems about dirt, but two beautiful poems that evoke this metaphorical sense in two very different ways. And of course, each poem is about much more as poems often are. But I wanted to share just an excerpt of each um, as my conclusion to highlight these connections between dirt and place and family and sustenance and self. And and the first is by Seamus Heaney. He's an Irish poet. He's one of my favorite poets of all time. Um, and it's a poem called Digging. And the second is by a poet named uh, Kwame Dawes. He was born in Ghana and he was raised in Jamaica. He currently lives and teaches at the university level in the United States. He's new to me. I'd never heard of him. I came across him in my dirt research. Uh, so I'm a new fan of his. So old fan of Seamus Heaney, new fan of Kwame Dawes. Um, so the Seamus Haney poem called Digging, this one really evokes the family connection 
um, the sustenance derived from dirt that we discussed and um, just I love that you're doing this. I love this. Great. Yeah. And I know that there are people out there who could read it better. So I I highly encourage you uh, to go. You can look up on YouTube. We'll link this in our show notes. You can see a video of Seamus Heaney actually reading this poem, poem himself. So under my window, a clean rasping sound when the spade sinks into gravelly ground, my father digging. I look down till his straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up 20 years away, stooping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging. The coarse boot nestled on the lug, the shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops, buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in our hands. By God, the old man could handle a spade just like his old man. My grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's Bog. Once I carried him milk in a bottle corked sloppily with paper. He straightened up to drink it then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf, digging. And I think in his language, it's It's amazing. You hear you hear the sound of the shovel. You hear the rasp of the um, of the dirt, which I think is what good. See so many images, yeah, that, that evokes. It's it's wild. Uh, and then the second poem, uh, "Dirt" by Kwame Dawes. This hits hard on the idea of that patch of earth to call your own, and you'll you'll hear in the poem, especially for those who who have been owned themselves or have been kept from owning anything in their lives. Dirt by Kwame Dawes. We who gave, owned nothing, learned the value of dirt. How a man or a woman can stand among the unruly growth, look far into its limits, a place of stone and entanglements, and suddenly understand the meaning of a name, a deed, a currency of personhood. Here, where we have labored for another man's gain, if it is fine to own dirt and stone, It is fine to have a plot where a body may be planted to rot. We who have built only that which others have owned learn the ritual of trees, the rights of fruit picked and eaten, the pleasures of ownership. We who have fled with sword at our backs know the things they have stolen from us, and we will walk naked and filthy into the open field, knowing only that this piece of dirt, this expanse of nothing, is the earnest of our faith in the idea of tomorrow. We will sell our bones for a piece of dirt. We will build new tribes and plant new seeds and bury our bones in the dirt. And I'll leave it there, except to just remind all of you not to forget that you are all star stuff. Lovely. Again, thank you, Alison. I I really enjoyed that. I hope audience you did as well. That's well, that's great. That's great. Part of, I think what you said and expressed around my patch of dirt, my patch of earth is a bit tied to some of my big questions, well, my big question in a way that I hadn't thought of before. So, I mean, we'll get there in a moment. <laughs> um, so, Listeners, we're going to transition into our big questions. 
and then we'll get our new word and close out this week. So Allison, if you don't mind, I know I, I've won the die roll earlier, so I'll, I'll jump yes, in for mine. Yes, absolutely. And you just said you have a good transition. Well, I, so I think out. so. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question and then I'll, I'll explain why I think it's, it's related to yours. So what's occurred to me, not for the first time, and, and I think it's most likely occurred to many of us, is as we continue to overpopulate the earth and we come to terms with, with what that means, not only with climate change, but with how climate change will compound the urgency of adequate food and resources, et cetera, et cetera. And, and over time, I think therefore an adequate distribution of your patch of land, like uh, eventually, right? If everything decays, you're not going to be able to, to have that if 9.5 billion doubles in another 200 years, you know, you know what I mean? Like it, it's just going to be, we're at exponential growth right now. Um, well, we always have been right. Uh, any, any species population is, is exponential, but, um, it's getting scary fast. And we know that science community has been ringing the bells for, for quite some time, the alarm bells. So I think that's where part of my question here is related to eventually it's going to be the impact on your ability to not be in massive urban high rises, one on the other with a, a degradation of quality of, of life and food and a patch of earth, so to speak. Well, literally and figuratively, right? So my question became, especially looking at all the cycles, all of the, the dynamic equilibrium at play in earth and ecology and the balance of these different gears, right? This, uh, the, the, the different spans of time, how it can bounce back, how it can adapt. But if we're throwing things too far out of whack too quickly and crossing tipping points, the, the danger of that. So one of my, my main question here is as we continue to increase our lifespan, make really important and valuable progress in honestly, I don't think it's science fiction to say eventually achieving immortality even. Like to think of the amount of time that we have increased our lifespan in just the past few hundred years and the massive amount of learning that we're doing right now through everything from the genome project, CRISPR, cloning, uh, the growing of artificial tissue to address diseases and so on, the the research done on telomeres and things like telomerase, where you are able to repair the fraying edges of DNA, which is thought to be one of the main drivers of aging, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't think it's difficult to say if we don't eradicate ourselves in the next 24 hours, ha <laughs> ha, just kidding. But in the next, you know, say we do survive the next 500 years, 200 years, the amount, how quickly scientific progress compounds, I really don't think it's impossible to think that we would just achieve basically a, an immortal state of some kind or, or just a significantly longer lifespan. So as we do that, right. The overpopulation question becomes an issue. The, the, the way that we coexist with the earth just becomes incredibly urgent. And so my question is, will we arrive at a calculated 
max capacity for a, for a planetary system. And I know I'm really going out there at this point. Like it's almost like sci-fi, Star Trek-y, but like per, no, per planet, right? Let's think of this. The planet, as we've just talked about in all of our cycles, each planet will have a balance. And I think it won't be unheard of to have a calculation of a species like humans to that to that planetary system what is the max population that it can afford without a significant degradation of your quality of life right i don't want to say that we're just going to solve the save the planet and have every person live but every person's life is horrible because you can't experience freedom of to move to enjoy outside you know what i mean uh to to eat what you want in a rich variety and so on and so on so i guess that's my big question is would we arrive at a calculated max capacity will we as a species be able to maintain that like make changes to adapt to honoring that calculation that balance through you know, I think of of China and their one child policy, which was really more for for their country specifically. But that is the type of dynamic that I think was just going to have to be something that we think about. And I just think of, uh, you know, patriotically and and being an American and loving our, our value system. But there is this streak of the individual trumping all. Ooh, terrible, terrible verb. <laughs> uh, uh, you know eclipsing all other communal which has been associated with governmental only right vibes but if we were to ask a you know a patriotic american to 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 make the concession that they should only have a certain number of children or to eventually when say i just said in 500 years we're immortal where you need to file a decision to end your life if you just get tired of it. I just think it's going to change so many things that we do socially. Say you decide when to die and that only when you die, somebody gets a license to have a child. Like that sounds probably like a dystopian nightmare to some people listening, but in my feeling, we're in a closed system. (laughs) Unless we really, you know, start to branch out to other planets, but even then that's a closed system and you're going to have to eventually over time have an equation for a balance for that system. Otherwise we're just going to start to trash everything and be what in popular cultural, the matrix, Mr. Smith said, you are a virus as humans, you just consume and leave everything. And so when are we going to learn to coexist with our surroundings? That's my soapbox and my big question. <laughs> I think though, right? It was great. It was right in keeping with all of our big questions, which are like, oh, we don't have the answers, <laughs> but these are the things that we need to be thinking about as the world. I I think you hit it and where I was going to go ties right into that. There, I also was thinking very much about like terraforming on Mars, for instance, which is sort of a future goal um, of SpaceX and NASA. Uh, but how important that would be, again, how fundamental soil and dirt is to everything we do and that that would have to be done wherever we go. But if we think about on Earth, so if you're thinking about going to work um, for non-governmental organizations, for NGOs in other countries. So I spent a very short time working in Rwanda for an NGO that was focused on improving access to healthcare, And in any work you do, 
in that space, you're going to be working with other NGOs that might have similar goals or might have different goals. And kind of the three like really big areas where you find a lot of focus is healthcare, you know, medical care, getting medical care to folks, um, education. So making sure that you're like getting ways that children are being educated and sustainable agriculture. It's the other one. And then also gender equality can come in there. Um, so if we're thinking about those four and you can have a pretty robust debate around which of the, so all of these organizations are fighting for funding. And so if you wanted to step back and think about how could we do the greatest good, it's probably by having more cooperation and figuring out the plan of which of these is more important. It's a system to use a mark word. So I don't think one can be more, you, you can't just focus on one, but, but what is it? And so uh, we'd all often have these debates over dinner. And I, when I was living in Rwanda and I really came down to education being the silver bullet because with sustainable agriculture, you're ensuring that a family um, can sustain themselves um, and ideally, have something to sell, but often the infrastructure isn't good enough that they'd be able to get crops to market in time for that. But, you know, ideally, if some other infrastructure improvements were made, um, if you focus on health care, you're making sure that the family is staying healthy enough to be able to work the land, sustain themselves um, and have children go to school. And if you focus on education, you're focusing on, for the most part, young children and teaching them to think critically and also teaching them, you can be teaching them sustainable agriculture within that, you can be teaching them about gender equality. And so for me, I thought, I think education's the, the absolute silver bullet. But now that I'm thinking about it and now that we are talking about the absolute fundamental nature of dirt and soil and farming and agriculture, literally to survival, I wonder if sustainable agriculture isn't the thing we should be focusing on because it's not just focusing on helping individuals or communities. It's focused on what you were talking about, Mark. We need to figure out how to manage this to kind of save the world before we get to a tipping point with climate change that is going to impact all of us when we are unable to produce enough food to feed the world. Um, so I do think that you hit on the perfect albeit unanswerable, big question. Yeah, because- That's bleak. It's it's bleak because it, it, we talk about like ruining the planet. Well, we're not going to in the, in the end. If we don't figure this out in time, we just won't be here. Right. Earth will heal at some point. <laughs> it's much longer timeline. It's just whether or not we're going to coexist and experience what could be really an amazing future for human species of, of no pain, of potentially living as long as you want, of, of fusion, cold fusion and advances and so many things that would make like energy. We could create, as we've covered so many times, right? Not being religious and I'm not religious, but sometimes I think that this, this heaven that everyone is picturing is something that we are intended to build here, right? Everything that's held up as this ideal of heaven is something that's achievable on earth. You could achieve no death. You could achieve no pain. You could achieve abundant food. You could achieve just enjoying at your own pace, your own hobbies. And, and you know, that that is something we can do if we 
cooperate and figure it out. Anyway, no, very, very big questions. It is a very big question. I wanted to throw one other thing in, and I just wanted to Google this quickly because I wanted to make sure I wasn't imagining this. But sure enough, there's an article that we will link in the show notes and on the website uh, from April of this year. I wanted to see how recent it was too. Um, a NASA scientist, I don't know if you had seen this, Mark. He he um, was protesting. Basically, he was he's very worried about climate change. The work he does at NASA gives him a lot of insight into just how bad it is. And um, so he decided he was just feeling a sense of desperation because his his point was like, nobody's listening, right? We say this, we talk about it, we have summits on it. And then you have scientists like these experts and people either don't believe them or aren't listening. So he actually chained himself to a JP Morgan Chase building in LA. I can't believe this wasn't on, I didn't see it on bigger news outlets and I only ran into this like a month ago unrelated to any of this research here. And one of a quote from him is, we're going to lose everything and we're not joking, we're not lying, we're not exaggerating. And so I think to be driven to that, you know, and any kind of ends it, his little protest by saying, you know, that's a, that means additional levels of death and suffering. Like, let's get down to it here. So if you want to think selfishly now, everyone's going to die. Um, and that's what the stakes are. And so I feel like when you have experts in the field, field driven to that level of desperation and activism, things really are dire indeed. And I don't know what it will take to, to get everyone to work together on this. Um, I think we shouldn't end just on that because it's a little dire. So I'll just throw in my jokey, my jokey big question was going to be, should I just make a playlist for every episode? Because I found so many songs about dirt. Like I, right. I quoted Woodstock, but then there's also like Dust in the Wind by Kansas and like, there's so much. So I think we're going to do that. Um, and I, I do encourage, I know we've maybe uh, left people feeling a little down here. There are a lot of other great avenues. Uh, if you're thinking about dirt and one I almost went down was uh, the history of the night soil men who removed excrement from, um, you know, for many years before there was indoor plumbing. Uh, or also uh, I was going to delve into Lenny Bruce thinking about dirt as like talking dirty. Um, I thought that might be an interesting way to go because he, he he wrote an autobiography called How to Talk Dirty and Influence People. And he, of course, was famously up on um, charges of indecency and he died before that could actually um, he was out on appeal um, but before the sentencing could happen. But he's been posthumously for anyone who doesn't know, Lenny Bruce was a, a comedian um, who worked blue. Um, in the 50s and uh, was jailed for it multiple times. And he's been posthumously um, pardoned for that. But there's kind of that whole interesting idea about talking dirty and First Amendment rights and what that really means. So those are maybe so a little more fun and uplifting routes to go. Right. right. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I, I really loved our conversation uh, this week. So Everyone, we are going to transition, I think, into our final segment, which is getting our new word uh, and recording our, oh, gut reactions. But I guess, Allison, do we want to kind of close our thoughts and ratings on this word? So I'm just looking back in time. Uh, we, when we first got dirt, you came in one out of 10 with an interest in, in um overall rating of a nine, you were pretty high for dirt. So after this week of 
research. What are you feeling? You know what? I, I'm going to leave it at a nine. I think I, like I said, I, I, I had some frustrations finding a way to go because dirt kind of has these different layers, Ah, pun intended of meaning. And I wasn't just quite sure to get there. And they had these interesting things like the Lenny Bruce thing and the excrement thing that just didn't feel to pan out. So it was a little bit frustrating, but I love where I ended up and just the idea of how fundamental dirt is. And I know there are a million other avenues to go down. So I'm going to stick with a nine. Perfect. What about I, I was you? an eight and you know what, not to play copycat, but I think I'm just going to stick with eight. That feels right. Um, I thought it would be interesting. It, it was I didn't go exactly where I thought, but I really enjoyed what I learned. Um, and I feel like it's important yeah. understandings of it. It's all coming back to what are we doing with carbon on this earth and how are we going to figure it out? <laughs> so yeah, I'll stick with eight. Great. The ultimate big question. Excellent. Okay. So shall we generate our word for next week? Yes. Let's do it. As always, like, right. you, like you mentioned last week, it's like drum roll. Like, ooh, what are our marching orders? It actually makes me nervous. Okay. So while Allison is setting that up, everyone, I just take a moment again to call out um, that we welcome your feedback. So please on social media, um, when we close out here in a moment, you'll, you'll hear all that information, but we still early seven episodes in, we would love uh, to hear your feedback, you know, things that we'll consider changing, right? We wanted to build this format see how it goes, see how it's received. Um, and then we'll make changes and make it better over time. So we, we want to bring you along with us on that journey. So thank you. All right, Allison, how are we, how are we doing? Oh, we're ready to go. Okay. If you're ready for it. I think so. Hmm. The word of the week is jewel. Jewel. J-E-W-E-L. Jewel. <laughs> Interesting. What do you one, think, Mark? One, one geologic to topic to another. All right. Um, like eight again. I, I think this is high for me, and this isn't going to be low. I just feel like from, yeah, geologic to a current, like a you know, value and currency, and then what people desire, and yeah, in the past, yeah, it's great. Excellent. Okay. Eight. Um, I think I'm going to go with a seven. I, I was initially feeling eight. One, I don't want to copycat you. And and two, <laughs> I, I just kind of thought, well, there could be so many avenues around this that are kind of geologically related, which would be kind of similar, maybe making it a little less interesting to me, but I'm going to go with a seven. So we have Mark at an eight and we have me at a seven for jewels. So I think Mark with that, should we it. close out? Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to our podcast. Please, if you enjoyed the show, we would love it if you would follow or subscribe on whatever platform uh, you're on that you use to listen to your podcasts. And if you could leave us a, a rating, that really helps us and it helps other people find the show as well. You can visit us on the web at renownedpodcast.com or on social media at Renowned Podcast. And of course, we hope you'll tune in next week for a new episode with the new noun. Until then. Bye, everybody.